Hello and welcome to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co-hosts are Mike Philbrick and Adam Butler, Principals at Resolve Asset Management Global. Today, we're going to be talking all about the Canadian ETF landscape, the North American ETF landscape, um, where the hotspots are, where ETF flows are coming to and going from. Our very special guest is Daniel Strauss, the head of National Bank Financial's ETF Research and Strategy Group, which focuses on providing both institutional and retail investors with value-add and actionable investment research relating to exchange-traded funds. His group regularly publishes street-leading reports on the ETF landscape in Canada and the U.S., including theme pieces, flow reports, model portfolios, trade ideas, and strategy reports. Their ETF research has been regularly featured in media outlets such as BNN, National Post, Bloomberg, Les Affaires, and the Globe and Mail. He joined National Bank's ETF research group as a research associate in 2010 and was promoted to director in 2020. He holds a bachelor's degree in applied science and engineering from the U of T, a PhD in engineering from Brown, and a master of finance degree from the Schulich School of Business. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Daniel, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So, Daniel, um, right on, Ed. Hey, hold on. We should we should press pause for a second. <laughs> sure. Uh, Mike's going to want to interrogate you on your experience at Brown, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> I will wait for that. Let, let's go with the flow. We can, we can do it live. Right. <laughs> okay. Okay. So okay. we're gonna we're gonna get to that anyway. Daniel, tell us about your background that's or, right. or um, and how or why rather did you decide to get into the financial business? after your doctorate in engineering. Sure, yeah. Well, thank you, Pierre. As, uh, as you could tell from my biography, I, I love school. I was a professional student for a very long time. I love school so much that I like to tell people that the third grade was the best two years of my life. I did repeat the third grade uh, as I switched from one private school to another. But uh, eventually, I, uh, I, I went into science because I always wanted to be a scientist. I love science. I love math. I love technology. I love science fiction, all that geeky stuff, which maybe we'll get a chance to talk about at the end. I don't know. Uh, but uh, I went into engineering in, uh, well, uh, you know, roughly the turn of the millennium, thinking to myself that, you know, who knows, in the, in the early 2000s, when I graduate, the, the tech industry will be booming and I'll be able to find a job very easily and quickly. And that was 2002, right? Uh, it was the collapse of the, of the NASDAQ bubble, uh, Canada's largest employer of Engineers at the time, Nortel, went from being an enormous weight in the TSX to basically uh, hiring zero engineers this summer that I was graduating uh, from regularly hiring over 100. Um, and then I said to myself, you know, I, I still really love knowledge, science, math. I'm very curious. Let me let me do the, the grad school thing and continue uh, in a PhD program. And by the time I graduate from that and you know, 2008, 2009, after six or seven years, the global economy will be booming. It'll be wonderful. It'll be fantastic, you know? So sure enough, I, uh, I surfaced from my submarine after defending my PhD thesis, which was on the subject of carbon nanotubes. In fact, it was called the uh, highly ordered carbon nanotube 
array and its heterojunction with silicon infrared investigations. Um, and it didn't work basically, you know, yeah. but, uh, like a lot, like a lot of grad school projects, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. But when I, uh, finally did resurface, I noticed that the world seemed to be collapsing all around me. That's at least what the newspaper headline said. And again, nobody was hiring. I, I was looking for work in, uh, you know, working either for, for government research or industrial stuff. I didn't really want to do the, the kind of post-talk track, which is a kind of revolving door of going from one school to another to another, looking for professional academic positions. And I always had a hobby interest in business and economics. And sure enough, and you know, at the peak of the 2008 or nine financial crisis, one glance at the headlines and I realized very quickly, I need to know about this or I'm going to have the wool pulled over my eyes by, by the kind of financial machine and infrastructure, which really seems to kind of make the world go round. You know, when we were studying engineering at U of T, we have a little um, little expression. I think a lot of the engineers put it on their jacket. It says ERTW. It says engineers rule the world. Well, I don't know if they, they, they know about the banking industry or, or the finance complex when they're sewing that onto their jackets. I, I realized it's something I need to learn more about. So, you know, why not do more school? I didn't want to do an MBA. By that point, I was saturated. I didn't really want another two years. So I found a one-year program a Master of Finance, which is a lot of the same material. It covers a lot of the same material as the CFA. And to me, it really was a literal crash course in, you know, financial analysis, macroeconomics, accounting, which I had never seen before, maybe very little exposure simply as a hobbyist. And, and that was a true eye-opening and awakening for me. And I was very fortunate from there to go directly into learning about ETFs. One of my mentors at the program, uh, Pauline Shum, Professor Pauline Shum, did a lot of research in ETFs. And it was something that I, I, I realized this is a very cool toy. It's a very cool technology. It gives you exposure to almost anything. It's incredibly efficient and it really kind of drives costs down to the bone, passing on benefits to end investors. I, I really thought of it as unique in the world of finance as something that really does kind of help the little guy. So I, I started to study it more and it was that um, process which probably gave me a little leg up when I went to interview with National Bank um, and in the subject of derivatives and financial products. I thought what I would need to learn going into the interview was uh, I needed to know my binomial trees and my option valuation because we'd be analyzing structured products and Himalayan notes and baskets and things like that. I, I was very excited. I was getting my modeling skills already. And the first question I received was, what do you know about ETFs? Because sure enough, you know, the, the previous head of research, uh, you know, Pat Kieflo, who now uh, who went on to head up BlackRock and is now with Invesco, he kind of started up the ETF research operation at National Bank in the aftermath of the financial crisis because so many new questions were coming in regarding ETFs. So that's how National Bank got its kind of toehold in the world of ETF research. National was already very much involved in ETF structuring and market making, but uh, the research component was a very natural add-on and I was brought in to be an associate. And uh, now it's we're almost 12 years later um, and I still feel like I'm learning. I still feel like every single day there's new facts in the marketplace that give me that kind of head spinning feeling that I that I got when I, like I said, opened my submarine hatch uh, from uh, where I was studying my PhD dissertation and started looking at the headlines uh, of, of a financial world in total disarray. You know, uh, the, the, you know, we've been through some boom bust cycle since then. Um, and uh, I, I still, um, you know, every day bedazzled. I have a new market indicator now, and I just I have one question, and we can call it quits. I mean, are you enrolled in or completing mm. another degree at this time? You know, if the ETF research thing doesn't pan out, 
If it doesn't pan out, I, I will go back to school and maybe get a PhD oh, in finance so that people Could treat me like an expert. Could you tell me when you make, because that, that'll be it. Yeah, that'll be the, you know, <laughs> that's right. You know, I, I would love to be able to, you know, publish academic papers on some of the stuff that we, uh, that we, that we research on here, here at National. But, uh, you know, uh, maybe, maybe one day as a retirement project, I'll, I'll do that. So, Daniel, has it been useful? Has, has your, uh, your engineering and <clears throat> mathematics background, has that been useful in terms of your analysis? That's a great question. So, I mean, there are a lot of ways to answer it. Uh, that I, I've learned as well in the world of finance that um, intangibles are very valuable, right? In fact, in this kind of new economy that we're in, the intangible assets on a balance sheet may in fact be the entire bedrock on which our modern financial system of, of technology and intellectual property is built upon, right? Um, and, uh, you know, I, I would say that I'm not designing bridges I'm not, uh, you know, designing circuits or, or, or anything like that, uh, or, or even doing, you know, uh, low temperature experiments in a vacuum on carbon nanotubes uh, in my day to day. But the intangible benefits of an engineering degree, I certainly do use, you know, that the, the kind of, um, there's a certain level of responsibility that comes from being trained as a Canadian engineer. It's in fact, why we wear an iron ring. And I, and I have mine on right now. It's more of a signal on the trading floor where there's a few of us who uh, who went through the ringer of Canadian engineering degrees, and we give each other this little kind of nod as we pass each other on the trading floor. This isn't the before times. Virtually, it's hard to do that, right? But uh, but th that kind of constant level of checking your work, that um, level of rigor of of of, of being evidence based and relying on data, that's something that I that we uh, you know I would I would I would hope I bring to to the workplace. You know, and I also feel very fortunate to be part of an amazing team with a diversity of backgrounds. You know, uh, I head up a team of four full-time analysts and associates uh, at National Bank who we are just looking at the ETF market all day, every day. And we're not all engineers. You know, uh, one of us has a background in economics, the other in, in computer science um, and, uh, you know, financial mathematics. It, it takes a little bit of everything because, you know, ETFs uh, can represent any asset class under the sun almost as we've seen. And you really do need to be a financial jack of all trades to, to, to be able to analyze them. And, and the engineering component, I would say, is the least useful thing maybe uh, that I bring to the table on, on a day-to-day -day basis because, you know, database management, programming, Python, statistics, uh, uh, that is far more valuable, I, I would say. Uh, but, uh, you know, intangibly, I, I look back at, at the program that I went through at U of T, engineering, science, and and uh, and I think you know, after having gone through that ringer, you know that kind of pressure cooker, um, you can you can handle anything that Bay Street or Wall Street uh, will throw at you. So, over the twelve year span that mm -hmm. you've been um, sort of probably one of the first full blown ETF research desks yeah. in uh, in Canada, and if not North America, what have been some of the the changes that you've observed in the ETF technology over the last decade? Sure. So uh, one of the of the big changes we saw, I think that uh, for the first, I would say, half of my career, for the first several years, ETFs were very much synonymous with passive index investing. So synonymous, in fact, that sometimes certain brands were synonymous with ETFs, right? Like, uh, you know, uh, maybe I'll name one now. Like some people would say, I want an iShares that gives me oil. You know, like uh, uh, there, there was a, a there was a level of um, uh, of education that we had to do, 
Um, and uh, the synonymity of ETFs with passive was, uh, and with ultra low cost was something that I think um, was accurate at first. But now, as the ETF complex is kind of swallowing up the entire rest of the asset management industry, we're still in the early stages for that. It still has relatively low market share relative to mutual funds and other forms of direct investment. Uh, a lot of the um, kind of early markers of ETFs being low cost, being passive, being highly diversified, being very, very liquid. Those are the reasons we love ETFs. And we have an entire suite of analytical tools to assign metrics to each of those qualities. Um, we're finding it's not necessarily the case that uh, all ETFs have those features. You don't need to have those features to have an ETF. There are ETFs now for senior loans. There's ETFs for crypto, as you know. Uh, there are ETFs for all sorts of overseas assets. Um, and I think, uh, you know, we, we may one day see ETFs for um, all very, very exotic and strange kind of combinations of derivatives and crypto assets. Who knows, right? But uh, the, the kind of um, the, there's a, something of a holdover. Of, of ETFs as having those kind of Boy Scout attributes that gives the kind of modern uh, ETF complex that a kind of lingering halo effect, um, which I don't know if it's entirely deserved. Um, and, uh, uh, and I think that culturally there are some shifts that are yet to come. Well, speak to those. What, what yeah. do you think the, uh, so you've seen a great deal of shifts mm -hmm. over the last decade. Well, what do you think are the shifts that, that might be brewing under the surface and about to bubble up? Yeah. So, um, Okay, so there the, are the, a lot of ways to kind of attack that. So let, let's uh, let's talk about what ETFs w were when they were new, right? They were kind of anointed as the kind of next great frontier of asset management. They were going to kill the mutual fund. They're going to kill active management. And now people are starting to question, what's the ETF killer, right? What's good? You know, do you remember when the when the when the iPod came out? It very very quickly became the uh, the kind of be all end all go to uh, vehicle for mp3 uh listening right and mp3s had killed the record industry and then absolutely mm -hmm. every single new mp3 player that came out uh there'd be breathless headlines that asked the question is this going to be the ipod killer you know is this phone going to be the iphone killer right um i think etfs are now in the gun sites uh, of the asset management industry and a lot of people are asking what's going to be the etf killer and already um you you know i i believe maybe some of your guests have have even attempted to address this question. I've, I've heard direct indexing, for instance, be, uh, be a possible way to do it. But in, in our view, direct indexing is, is kind of a, a, a kind of new technological dressing, perhaps a new, uh, very sophisticated algorithmic dressing for an older technology, which is SMAs, right? Uh, which have always existed. Now they have their pros and cons. And in fact, some of them for some clients may indeed be superior uh, to ETFs. We're not married to ETFs. And I think that um, uh, coming down the pike, there might be a, a form of cheap and easy delivery of SMAs, which for some investors, not all, it may in fact be an ETF killer. Um, then the, another possibility is who knows if, if, if the digital asset revolution really does take root in a kind of very comprehensive way with regulatory clarity and uh, all the amazing innovations that you're seeing happen uh, on in the world of crypto exchanges, for instance, become absorbed into the world of, uh, of equity and bond trading even in terms of transparency and instantaneous settlement and, uh, you know, all, all that um, uh, kind of algorithmic automated trade settling. Uh, perhaps in the future, there will be digital baskets, you know, uh, there, there will be some kind of like smart contract form of bundling whole portfolios and asset management styles. 
and maybe that will kill the ETF. But I think that's uh, that's a long ways off, and I, that's kind of like predicting self-driving cars. When's that going to happen? Right? It's like a, a, a lot of uh, 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 I think innovations will have to occur in the world of software and artificial intelligence before we start to see uh, major threats have uh, occurred in the world of ETFs. So, I mean, that's me putting a little bit of my kind of uh, pie in the sky prognosticator hat on. I, I still think that we are uh, uh, in the kind of very kind of smooth elbow of the hockey stick growing up in terms of ETF adoption. And in the near, near term, three to five years, uh, I don't see anything threatening the kind of dominance of ETFs in the mindshare of especially new young investors um, because they are so cheap, easy, convenient uh, for the most part. Any thought just what, like the taxation, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, the, the sort of unevenness of taxation yeah. in the U.S., which may or may not be addressed at some point in the future. Do, yeah. do you think that plays a role in there at all? I do. Uh, or, so, so Mike, yeah, just a little bit of background in, in case the listeners aren't familiar. You know, you often hear uh, when you're gi given the long laundry list of what makes ETF so wonderful, uh, tax efficiency on the list. And, and I don't know if we play back the tape if I said that, right? Uh, I said they're ultra low in cost. Uh, they're highly, highly liquid, very, very diversified, uh, high performing and tax efficient, right? That's often uh, added to the list of the kind of Boy Scout attributes that ETFs have. And certainly amongst my um, US-based ETF anal anal analyst counterparts, uh, they will list that attribute as one of the chief selling points for ETFs. And in the United States, it's true. They do have this almost unfair advantage via the in-kind redemption mechanism to kind of ratchet up cost base internally because of their lot accounting method, right? In Canada, we don't have that. In Canada, ETFs are much more similar to mutual funds and have to do average cost-based accounting. They can do other little tricks with proxy securities and so on. And by and large, a passive strategy, which is market cap weighted, already has very low turnover. So there won't be necessarily tax events coming from, you know, uh, new additions uh, to the portfolio uh, and, and dispositions on a routine basis if you're in a, in a cap weighted index. But uh, the, the playing field is not the same. Um, ETFs in the U.S. do have this tax advantage. I wouldn't call it an unfair advantage. And if I, if I could back up a little bit, backpedal a little bit, yeah. it's not really an unfair advantage. It is an advantage. But what's really unfair is the way mutual fund taxation works, the way that the tax bill is delivered once a year. And if you are uh, a mutual fund long-term unit holder, you have to bear the tax burden for all these entrants and exits that occur over the course of your holding period, which have nothing to do with you, right? Uh, that's a little unfair. So if anything, perhaps there will be some kind of amendment to tax codes in the U.S. where the mutual fund industry will be able to um, pass along some kind of like NAV or price-based, cost-based tax treatment to their investors so that they can be on equal footing with ETFs. I don't know if that will ever happen. In fact, it's more likely that it will happen when the Vanguard patent expires in 2023 and many mutual fund companies will be able to list ETF shares on an exchange and then will be able to engage in these so-called heartbeat trades so that they can um, uh, wash out uh, tax gains exactly the way um, Vanguard and other companies can do it if they have, you know, multiple share classes. Um, and, uh, you know, now we're getting deep into the weeds, into the kind of plumbing of how ETFs operate and where their an, an, uh, uh, advantages come from. But it's, it's a very good question. I think that uh, it's, it's something we do think about. Um, it's something that we're monitoring. And, uh, and I think that that tax advantage is why the U.S. ETF market is, in fact, um, twice as big on a, on a representational basis 
as Canada's, right? Uh, in fact, more than twice as big now. The U.S. ETF market is seven trillion USD in AUM. That's seven trillion trillion with a T, right? It's it's a very big number. Uh, in Canada, the AUM is something like 320, 350 billion Canadian, right? So less than one twentieth the value, even though everything in the U.S. generally is about 10 times the size. So there is a kind of a doubling um, of, of assets on a representational basis in the U.S. relative to Canada. And I think that it's that tax advantage that is that has kind of accelerated the uptick there, even though Canada was the locus for the first ETF ever. Yeah. You know, in the early 90s, yep. was, you know, I'm sure that's it's come up on the this tip. podcast on many. Yep. Exactly. On, uh, it's come up on this podcast and many others. You know, the XIU uh, has its roots in the first ETF ever launched. Canada had the first uh, bond ETF. It had the first currency hedge ETF. It had the first physical crypto ETFs, the first marijuana ETFs, uh, a lot of first um, kind of hedge fund like ETFs that do very, very unique kind of uh, long short uh, strategies new since 2019 because of, uh, you know, relaxations in, in the rules around alternative mutual funds. So it's a world of firsts, but it's still represent uh, proportionately small compared to the U.S. Uh, for all sorts of reasons. And I think the taxation component is one of them. Do Canadian advisors and investors use ETFs the same way as U.S. advisors and investors use them, do you think? Like, do you see any differences right. in the behavior or how they fit into portfolios? Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of splintering in the way ETFs are used, right? Um, uh, they, they used to be used just for core allocations. Um, and, and a lot of advisors especially use ETFs in a kind of core and explore fashion where they would use the ETFs, the big giant placeholder for the center of an ETF of, of a portfolio, of a managed portfolio. They would construct it out of building blocks going to all sorts of different asset classes. And then they would have exploratory positions either in, in individual security stocks, structured notes, what have you. And, and that's been a very good model. And we know that that's been applied in the U.S. as well as in Canada. But now there's there's a splintering. People are using ETFs um, in, in manners that make my head spit. You know, like um, uh, an example would be, you know, certain thematic ETFs, which, which have become memes unto themselves, right? Not something I would have predicted. Um, uh, you know, there's, uh, we see... Uh, in the early days, there's, there, there have been major changes. Adam. So, so to your question, in the early days, uh, advisors and investors did use ETFs quite a bit to rotate among sectors and geographies. Those were the tools that were on the shelf at the time. Then with the advent of all these different kinds of smart beta ETFs, single factors, multi-factors, and so on, we saw a slow, a gradual, and then sudden uptake in the use of individual factors and rotating amongst them, depending on market conditions. And factors, in a sense, became sectors. People were using them strategically and tactically, sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly. A, a case in point is what we observe in terms of low volatility ETF flows. You know, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, which is again the kind of the 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 the, uh, the fertile soil from which my career was born, right? Um, the, uh, there was so much demand for capital preservation and risk mitigation after having gone through the scarring experience of like 50% market drawdowns very, very suddenly. Um, uh, there, there was a boom in the development of the so-called low volatility ETFs, right? SPLV was the first one, then USMVs quickly followed. In, the, in Canada, we have ZLB and a whole bunch of others as well that uh, track this factor. And it is, it is a factor. It's an academic factor. It's an anomaly. What do you want to call it? But the, the inflows into this factor after the financial crisis were phenomenal. Year after year, many billions of dollars going in. And, uh, and then what we saw 
um, in the last kind of corona apocalypse, the low vol factor, which had done very well for about 10 years, kind of faltered a little bit, as every factor would expect it to, to do, you know, like it, no factor can win 100% of the time, right? Um, you know, it's a, in fact, if it wins 51% of the time, that's, that's, that's pretty good, right? Better than a coin toss. Um, and, uh, and what we saw with the low fall factor was that it, in fact, delivered what the academic practitioners and index developers said it would deliver through the Canadian oil crisis and crash. You know, those companies became the high vol companies and uh, the low vol ETFs rotated out of them. Those products did very well. Um, you know, uh, in the back test, certainly, uh, they all avoided the financial crisis having rebalanced out of the bank stocks uh, 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 early enough. And if the back test extended to the tech crash, of 2002, it avoided that as well. Um, and so in Canada, the low vol ETFs did nat circumnavigate the 2014-2015 oil route. But then during 2020, they participated almost completely in the 30-some percent drawdowns that we saw in the market and in fact did not recover with the market at all because it was a growth-led recovery. And the high volatile uh, fang stocks and their ilk drove that recovery cloud computing, all this kind of interesting stuff, which was not in the low vol indices. And as a result, they lagged. And investors flowed out of that product category in subsequent months. For the first time, we saw a big turning. When did these outflows occur? After the fact, right? So you have performance chasing, you have negative performance chasing. ETFs, factor strategies, sectors, you know, they're wonderful, but they do not cure an investor's or even an advisor's worst tendency to performance chase and go after what just worked, right? Yeah. Amen to that. Yeah. So how do you, on the desk, mm -hmm. because, well, first of all, maybe, maybe tell us a little bit about what National Bank's ETF research desk does. And sure. um, that might lead in a couple of directions that I'm keen to explore. Yeah, no, no, great question. So one way that it, uh, one direction that it doesn't lead into is having a short list of recommended ETFs. You know, we are often asked, what's on your recommended list? And I know that in the traditional world of fund analysis, having a recommended list is a very powerful and very helpful thing to advisors even. And I don't want to, I don't want to disparage that practice, you know, because now that I'm, now that the world of ETFs and mutual funds is blending, uh, I have to kind of blend myself into being not just an ETF analyst, but also a fund analyst. And so having a recommended list is something that is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a sacred tradition. I don't want to uh, uh, dump on it, uh, but it's not something we do because uh, so many ETFs um, are, are similar to one another, but with very minor differences that matter to, uh, to the individual circumstance that you're in. Whereas other ETFs are, in fact, almost carbon copies of one another. That's one of the kind of dirty secrets of ETF analysis. There are dozens of ETFs that track the same index, and if they have the same structure and same fee, and more or less the same market making plumbing behind them. They're physically replicated. There's no synthetics. Um, you know, they can reinvest dividends. They don't have weird old fashioned kind of rules against that. Like for instance, spy might in the U S because it's a UIT and not a 1940 act fund. Um, you know, uh, if ETFs are identical, we don't want to recommend, recommend one over another. That would send the wrong message. We feel to the street, to our advisors who follow our research. So what we do, uh, Adam, to answer your question is we will uh, consider the whole uh, playing field, uh, the whole landscape of potential ETFs that might qualify for the exposure a client or an advisor is looking for. And then we will uh, work with the advisor or client to understand what they're trying to do for, on behalf of their clients. 
what are the kind of exposures they're really looking for? What are the risks that concern them? Um, what, uh, what else is happening in the portfolio? Where do they have any overlaps or gaps? And then we will give the advisor or whoever we're advising, because sometimes it's, it's institutional clients of our trading desk, um, a menu of options with some uh, analysis supporting why you might pick an ETF or, an other, or another. So we really see our mission as education, as lifting the hood on uh, every ETF that's out there and explaining how they work and how they might differ to anybody who wants to make a decision so that they can make a more informed decision. You know, we do publish a model portfolio report, for instance, which does um, highlight in the tear sheets in the back and in back tests and so on, specific ETFs for specific exposures. But that's more of a kind of um, everything, including the kitchen sink kind of research product where we're trying to show the various different kinds of ETFs that could slot into a very, you know, diversified portfolio. Uh, National Bank does have, for instance, UMAs and, and portfolio baskets of its own that it sells, and they... We don't manage those, but they do come to us and leverage our research capability when the actual PMs of those projects um, wish to make an allocation. They will use our research to help them decide which is the right one for the, uh, for the, for the, for the client, right? Uh, very often, and in the early days especially, the decision would amount to this ETF is very large and liquid, um, has very narrow spreads, but it has a higher fee. This other ETF is a little bit newer, its fee is a bit lower, has larger entry costs, but has a lower fee. So if you're going to trade tactically, go for the liquidity, prioritize that. If you're going to invest for the very long term, prioritize the ultimately low fee so that you can compound your returns for longer. Um, and then there's a break-even point. What's the holding period? We're talking about basis points here, right? Uh, very often, um, uh, the decision does amount to uh, understanding where those break-evens occur, and uh, how many basis points exactly we're talking about. But um, in the new era, uh, we, we have to do so much more than just that, understanding the factor exposures, the concentration, uh, and then sometimes, in fact, the structure. Is it in the corporate class? Is there a synthetic uh, backdrop to it? Uh, how does it hold its international securities? There's, there's so much that, uh, that can be done and that each individual investor, because their own situations are different, we will try to custom and tailor our research for that particular investor. So uh, that's all a very roundabout way of saying that it's a lot of work because there's a lot of individuals, right? Um, and there's no cookie cutter solution for any one of them. A lot of the major banks have, um, and I think this has been guided by the OFC, mm -hmm. but they tighten the screws on know your product rules right. over the last year or so. Mm -hmm. You've also noticed a shift in it the way I mean, it used to be that for the major banks, the asset management arm was a was a pretty substantial profit center. I mean, mm -hmm. I remember the days when the Royal Bank balance fund, maybe this is still true, but used to be large mutual fund in Canada and they you know, for a balance for passive portfolio effectively they were charging two point four percent. And I mean obviously TF industry um, positioned to disintervene that for the Canadian banks. I think the Canadian banks over the last little while have kind of retaliated by issuing their own suite of ETFs. So yeah. now every bank basically has their own suite of ETFs and these new KYP rules um, make me offer cover for these banks to uh, make the case they know their own products the best, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, have you noticed any uh, shift 
way that advisors are using ETFs now as a lot of these sort of strategic and competitive forces manifest over the last couple of years? Yeah, yeah. No, so you're absolutely right. There there have been strategic and kind of marketing forces happening in in the background of all this massive asset growth and product innovation that we've seen. And that um, is a big part of why, uh, you know, the Canadian ETF industry is now at $320 billion. It's, And it's why it's been growing at 22% cumulative annual growth rate for the past 10 years, because uh, there are decisions coming from the top that have um, uh, discovered that the, the, that the ETF works very well as part of a, for instance, a fee-based business model, right? Uh, when If you're part of a bank and uh, you have... Uh, a slew of advisors who are, uh, you know, each engaging in their own kind of practice, um, encouraging a migration to fee base is a way for you to get, as the parent bank, uh, you know, kind of revenue certainty, right, uh, over other models. Um, and, uh, and you know, when, when revenue is less volatile, cost of capital is cheaper. I mean, there's a lot of uh, reasons to understand economically why that's in the interest of the, of the parent bodies. But it does also happen to be in the interest of, of, of end investors as well, uh, when you kind of look at the history of how, you know, um, in the kind of Wild West early days of, you know, commission-based business models, um, you know, many, many clients in it may have found themselves encouraged to kind of perhaps overtrade their portfolios. Now, this is the amazing thing. ETFs are wonderful buy and hold vehicles, but they don't, they're not a silver bullet uh, against that either because they're so uh, liquid and tradable, uh, you, you, they, they may in fact still encourage uh, perhaps excessive trading on the behalf of, as we see, even discount investors as well. So uh, to, to go to what you're saying, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll, put, I'll put it this way. When I started at National Bank, there were four ETF providers, okay? Um, BMO, I think, was uh, uh, one of the earlier banks on the scene. In fact, TD had ETFs prior to when I even joined uh, that they launched and uh, delisted uh, before I even uh, got into this business. So uh, at the time, there were four providers, um, and even though there have been some mergers and consolidations, we're now at 40, right? Uh, there was one bank at first. I mean, there was one, then zero, then another one. And now all six are in the business, including National Bank. National Bank Investments also, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, offers its own ETFs. And, and, you know, our research operation sees them as an important client, as all the banks are an important client, because it is like one big kind of, um, you know, the, the the Canadian banking industry, for better or for worse, is... is uh, is, uh, is it's a different kind of competitive landscape than it is in the U.S., right? Uh, and, and that very much does apply to, uh, to banking to, and to ETF market making. There are a lot of kind of regulatory reasons why uh, the Canadian, for instance, active ETF landscape has grown quite a bit faster than the U.S. 25% yep. of our assets are active in Canada, uh, as opposed to now what is something like three, maybe pushing 4% in the U.S. when it was sub 1% for a very, very long time. Um, and that's because... So what, you know, what drove that? What so, drove that difference? Well, why, why is it? Why are there so many more active uh, funds well, in Canada? Great question. Yeah. So uh, the primary reason for that is that the regulatory landscape is friendlier for active ETF portfolios in Canada than until recently it was in the United States. In the U.S., uh, ETFs required, I believe, more like two, sometimes three authorized participants. That's you know designated market makers. Uh, to receive a fully transparent representation of the portfolio every single day in order to support the market-making function. And that portfolio needed to be communicated in full and with total transparency every single day. A lot of active managers in the U.S. 
um, that would make them bristle because they don't want to, you know, you've probably heard this, they don't want to kind of tip their hand or reveal their secret sauce or anything like that. In Canada, um, for better or for worse, ETFs are don't need to disclose their portfolios any more frequently than mutual funds do, which is quarterly with like a one month lag and only top 10 holding or something like that, and maybe only annually for the full portfolio. There's, there's a lot of opacity that is afforded to active managers in Canada, which is what they want so that they can kind of conceal their trades and, and kind of protect uh, their, their asset management style from leakage onto the street. Um, in Canada, uh, an active manager is satisfied to, you know, perhaps sign an NDA with an ETF market making desk or a few of them and say, please don't divulge my entire portfolio and trades to your own institutional equities desk, which is, you know, just down the hall from you, you know, whereas in the U.S. that wouldn't even fly, right? Uh, there's less trust, you know, um, uh, in, on Wall Street than there is on Bay Street, probably because it's, it's, it's a bit, you know, culturally more, more shark infested there. I don't want to say that the, the the Bay Street and Wall Street culture isn't is that different. It really isn't. But you know, uh, the, the the Canadian environment is is perhaps a little bit friendlier on on many scores. Regulators are 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 more supportive and friendlier towards the uh, the asset management industry. And so, when active ETFs were first coming to market here, you know, they they got approval to be semi transparent, which took a long time, even in the United in the United States. And now uh, they have to go through all these unbelievable innovation and patent hoops in order to have active non-transparent portfolios, which is a relatively new innovation there and may in fact spur whole new waves of growth as we saw in 2021 when a number of large mutual fund providers started to convert, Dimensional being one of them, they converted about 40 billion in active yeah. funds to ETFs in, in 2021. And that was the first time that happened in the US. We haven't seen mutual funds convert to ETFs here in Canada, but we have seen mutual fund companies launch ETFs many times over, insurance companies as well, you know, uh, Manulife is there, uh, McKinsey is there, um, uh, other funds like uh, Dynamic partnered with iShares at first and, and now have their own ETF businesses. Um, uh, you know, a lot of the ETFs in Canada that people would not necessarily even think of as active, we treat and think of as active because they don't track the third-party recognized index. You know, BMO has been a pioneer of that, these kind of like algorithmically driven quasi-index-like strategies that are running with a black box you know, on BMO's quantitative desk for just their dividend ETFs or even their low volatility ETFs. There's no third-party index that you can track. Those are effectively active, and uh, those have been very popular. And, and how how have you how have you and your team uh, sort of adjusted to the explosion in in that mm. thematic space and the liquid alt sure, space? Sure. So the first thing we had to do uh, to adjust the explosion was upgrade from Excel to SQL. That was the first thing we had to do. You know. In fact, when I started at National Bank, the, the research department was still kind of spooling up in its Toronto office. And I had like a very old version of Excel on my, my PC when, when I sat down in my cubicle. Uh, I don't remember the precise calendar year of it, Excel 2000 something, but it only had 128 columns, right? Uh, uh, a nice even power of two. And I said, 128 columns, that's fine. There's what, 100 ETFs in Canada? This is plenty, no problem, you know? Um, and. Sure enough, I needed to, uh, to just to keep a spreadsheet of, of the ETFs. I needed to like break up again into two files. And when they finally upgraded to, 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 the, to a newer version of Microsoft Office that allowed for, I don't know how many tens of thousands of, of columns, I was like, okay, this is, this is enough. But it wasn't really. We needed to um, migrate technologically to like SQL and Python and a bunch of database tools just to run our statistics. So uh, that's, that was a big change. Uh, but now we're up to 1,200 ETFs in Canada, Mike. And 
I often get the question, is that too many? Are we due for a wave of consolidation? Is there going to be a moment of reckoning in the future where there's massive waves of, of delistings and termination? Um, I don't think there will be because, you know, I, not a lot of people can even answer how many mutual funds there are in Canada. I've looked it up myself, and I don't know how many there are. Sometimes I see the number 8,000 coded, but when you count the alphabet soup of different kind of series and so on, A, O, F, C, D, I don't know how many letters there are, uh, the, the, uh, you, you get to something like 20,000 uh, mutual funds. Nobody bats an eyelash. That Nobody ever says that's too many, right? Um, I, I, you could say that maybe there's too many S&P 500 ETFs because uh, every provider has one. And they have a currency hedge version and a whole bunch of them have usd versions as well um and you know uh in the us there are three does canada really even need more than that um so i i don't know uh if, if there's going to be like maybe some differentiation on that score uh but that is the most famous index in the world if there was any index that's going to have like a dozen versions on the tsx then it would be that one right um i think that we are going to see many many more etfs launch because um you know, it used to be that a theme, once it would start to resonate in Mindshare, and we're talking about things like, you know, robotics and automation, cloud computing, social media, and so on, um, there would be an ETF listed or launched that would kind of capitalize on that craze. You know, marijuana, the cannabis industry, another one that that ETF from Horizons launched before legalization. And it was originally a life sciences ETF tracking what was medical marijuana at the time. Uh, and now it just tracks the broader cannabis industry. And there were a few other ETFs that launched as well. One since delisted in that space because first mover advantage is very hard to dethrone. But I think the coming environment means that ETF providers and asset managers are going to have to try to guess what the next trend will be and try to plant the flag before anyone else even sets foot on the territory so that it can be there before that craze takes off. And that's, you know, we saw that... Uh, uh, in the uh, after in the aftermath of the COVID sell-off, with uh, the phenomenal popularity of a, of an airline ETF in the U.S., uh, some travel ETFs happen to be in the right place at the right time. I can't tell you how many advisors ask me which ETF will give me the highest exposure to cruise lines. They ask me right at the peak of the pandemic, and I'm like, you know, forget the coronavirus. Aren't you aren't you worried about like rotaviruses? And well, there's like other there's other viruses you can catch on a cruise. Uh, but um, uh, I don't know if that industry will cover. Maybe I'm wrong, um, you know, but, uh, but you know, and, and we would show them. We would show them that there are some consumer discretionary ETFs or some travel and leisure ETFs that have very high weights and some of these very, very beaten down cruise companies. Um, so travel uh, uh, has been a, a theme that needed to, to be on the exchange just as the demand was coming in. So I think that uh, we will see a raft of launches from very creative uh, and, and, and forward-thinking ETF issuers who are trying to imagine what will be the next theme. And that doesn't necessarily have to be kind of a subsector theme, right? Like virology or, you know, gene therapy or mRNA treatments or something like that. It can be, it can be a, a, a quantitative theme. It can be an alt strategy that, that uh, will soon come to be in demand given the inflation fears that we're seeing in the economy right now, given the ultra incredibly low prospects for, for returns from fixed income and, and so on. So I think that, uh, or even given the, uh, the uh, you know, long foretold death of the 60-40 portfolio, right? Those are an enormously popular category in Canada that have themselves been uh, a gangbuster source of growth. 
these kind of balanced ETFs that first came from Vanguard in the form of ultra-low-cost products. But iShares, you know, was uh, quickly kind of retooled their lineup to compete. Uh, BMO launched their own, Horizons has some total return vehicles. We saw Fidelity just launch one with a little kind of crypto sleeve. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, they're, they're w w once, um, you know, we start to see an in-sample period where the kind of 60-40 portfolio falters, because it hasn't really thus far um, but you can easily imagine certain kind of market environments where it would. Uh, there will be demand for strategies that can prove themselves as, um, as, as delivering that kind of true diversification. And um, uh, if they are on the exchange, if they're there now, then, uh, then that live performance will be a better, you know, uh, imprimatur than any kind of uh, piece of marketing collateral. And I think that that's what we're going to, um, see in, in the next three to five years. Well, I like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> we, we've got, obviously, we, we manage an ETF in the Horizons group that does some of those types of things and thinks about that inflationary exposure and, mm -hmm. and uh, an impulse that might be happening. But that, that falls in this liquid alt category. So right. are you seeing enough mm -hmm. uh, product flow yet to start to categorize in that area? Yeah. Or is that is that something where you're looking at saying, oh, we've got a few entrants, but... It hasn't had that impulse yet in, in Canada. Certainly in the U.S., there's mm -hmm. a little bit more of that. Right. Um, we've we've launched a paper called Return Stacking, mm -hmm. which is you know about having that 60-40 uh, in the portfolio, but but doing it in a way that allows for more portfolio real estate. So using some levered ETFs that give you the balanced fund, so you have mm -hmm. less money exposed to that yeah. and can think about some alts within the portfolio. But we haven't seen those innovations quite take the grasp right. in Canada and, and maybe because it's in more an inflationary yeah. economy. But what are your thoughts there? Yeah. I think there's a few uh, reasons for why they haven't really started to kind of sprout up in terms of asset flows or even demand or even client questions. Um, one of them is that uh, when it comes to that category, I, in our experience, and this is anecdotal, um, advisors who are looking for those <clears throat> kinds of quant strategies really do like to see live in sample performance. And the, uh, uh, you know, a case study for that would be smart beta ETFs, certain, certain kinds of smart beta or even single factor ETFs. There were some in Canada that launched, um, you know, in, in, the, in, in the early 2010s. Uh, and then you could clearly see at the one year and three year anniversary, small upticks in, in the flows. You know, there's definitely market participants out there sophisticated ETF users who do want to see <clears throat> minimum one year, and it would be ideally nicer to have longer uh, track records uh, demonstrated. Now, we all know that past performance is no, you know, predictor of future. And, uh, you know, that that's true. But for, you know, it, it, I, I think it is a reality that m uh, many of the target market for these kinds of alt ETFs, um, uh, there, there's no replacing in their mind um, the, the benefit of an actual kind of live uh, track record. So you you will need to wait, I think, until those kind of windows roll over uh, before you even start to see some fish nibble on those kinds of uh, strategies. The other reason, I think, um, <clears throat> is uh, the COVID crash, right? That kind of um, derailed a lot of, I think, uh, plans and even thinking around investment. Um, you know, it, I, I mentioned earlier that it was 2019. I think it was announced in 2018. So it actually goes back uh, quite a number of years now because we are in 2020, 2022, right? Like it, 
uh, have we passed the Blade Runner date? I think you know, it's like <laughs> this is the future, right? Um, it was twenty twenty. It was twenty eighteen when uh, I don't even want to think about Terminator two or something like that because we're we're already in a we're in a nuclear smoking crater if that's the alternate timeline we're talking about. But um, you know, uh, it, it was around twenty seventeen eighteen when the framework around alts was uh, you know undergoing some regulatory changes in Canada. Um, we saw a raft of launches around such strategies, you know, market neutral from, you know, storied hedge fund managers in Canada who are attempting, uh, uh, you know, an ETF business of their own around this kind of newly opened up alt space with relaxed rules around concentration, around gross leverage, uh, short positions and so on. Really, really kind of opening up to investors kind of uh, a, a kind of institutional power in asset management that had not uh, heretofore been available to them. And then, you know, a strange new kind of respiratory disease emerges uh, overseas, uh, and nobody's thinking about it anymore. These ETFs chugged along, and they had quite a bit of divergence in their performance. Most of them gave partial participation to the downside because everything went on sale, right? Um, and, and those few that outperformed during the kind of, uh, you know, spring 2020 period when the markets were selling off gave back their gains because they had short positions in high beta stocks and so on. You know, um, and uh, and I think that uh, that kind of giant global macro event pushed the Canadian kind of investor mindset to th into placing the kind of alt idea onto the back burner. But it's going to come back. Another example is ESG, right? Mm -hmm. ESG was another massive buzzword. It was it had a lot of uh, hype and uh, headlines heading into the <laughs> Corona apocalypse. The, the COVID crash occurred. And the ESG conversation disappeared, right? The products were still there, but it's come back. And it came back faster than I thought it would, right? I thought that, uh, you know, that, that the, the diminishment in concern around ESGs after, after that crash would, uh, would kind of scar investors a little bit. And a lot of people would react the way they did after the 2008 or 9 crash, which was, I don't care what you do with my money, just protect my capital. So many investors kind of had that, uh, um, uh, mindset coming out of 2008 or 9. Uh, but, but now I think with the kind of dramatic and historic interventions and the very surprising bull recovery that occurred in the aftermath, the ESG conversation is back. It's back in yeah. force in a way that makes people think, you know, there is a, a, a connection. It, it, it's a bit of a logical leap, but there is a connection. There is a tie between ESG and globalization and the spread of pandemics and uh, transparency and awareness of these things. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we, we live in a connected world and, uh, and, and, and that part of the conversation has come back and, and I think it will happen with alts as well. So <clears throat> well, like tech also typically ranks highly at ESG. That's right. Yeah. Another Ranking. coincidence. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is. Yeah. It's exactly. true. Like a lot, like Microsoft, Apple, uh, you know, all those companies have huge, uh, huge footprints in a lot of those indices and, and high scores uh, uh, from from ESG ratings agencies, because, you know, when you when your business is in the air, when it's in the cloud, you know, you can't despoil the earth. Right. As much as uh, as an actual uh, extractive traditional industry or oil company. But we know we, we rely on those things. So we had we had uh, Daniel, we had an exceptional uh, near two year period there leading up to late last year. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And then we've had the you know, the specter of inflation come back. It's caused some upheaval this mm -hmm. month mm -hmm. uh, in the month of January uh, 22. And what, what like 
I'm curious to know, you know, from a macro standpoint, like because you're overlooking the entire ETF mm-hmm. <clears throat> industry, uh, how did things change from late last year till now? What have you what have you sort of witnessed happen this last month with flows mm-hmm. in and out of the market? What are you seeing? Sure. Yeah, that's a good question. So I can tell you, like, just when it comes to the macro viewpoint, you know, I'm very fortunate to work for, you know, National Bank. We're not just an ETF research arm that's kind of like uh, amputated from a larger organization. National Bank has its own uh, chief economist and a really good CIO office and and an asset allocation team. And we very much rely on their outlook and commentary. Uh, when it comes to, to to macro calls, and in fact, what we'll do is we'll often map it to the to the right ETFs to kind of align it with with their calls. Um, what we found uh, in 2021 was a a pattern of flows, the likes of which you know had not been witnessed in history. And we had previous years of gangbuster ETF flows, but 2021 really kind of blew the roof off the place, both in Canada and the U.S. And it wasn't just um, ETFs; it was also mutual funds, right? So in, in 2021, um, ETFs had $53 billion in inflows in Canada, which was like fully one-third higher than any prior year. Um, and in the U.S., the, re- the amount of inflows in the U.S. was something like $900 billion. It was almost a trillion, which, again, was also 20-some percent higher than the past record set in like 2017 or something like that. Um, I don't, I'm not exactly sure when the prior record was broken, but uh, suffice to say, 2021 was uh, was enormous. It was enormous for mutual funds as well. Um, and and why is this happening? You know, we we got that question many times. What explains all this? Um, and it's it's a post pandemic phenomenon, right? There's this this is wealth effect going on where uh, you know unprecedented stimulative action has kind of put enormous amounts of money in the hands of regular uh, investors, or at least a certain tranche of them, which is, you know, whether, you, I don't know if you want to call them one percenters, but it is the upper quartiles of the Canadian wealth distribution happened to do well financially through this plan- pandemic. It's 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 kind of hard to say so. And I have to oh, wonder yeah. if uh, policymakers are going to look back on it and wonder if they, they could have done things differently because it was a, it was a hard pandemic for, for a lot of people, right? Frontline workers, um, you know, doctors, medical professionals, um, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, restaurateurs and gym owners had a, had a, had a rough go of it. But, uh, you know, I feel very fortunate that uh, the, the demand for ETF research um, was never higher. And uh, uh, aside from, you know, a, a kind of brief momentary period where my emergency deployed laptop wasn't really kind of fast enough, um, I, uh, I, I, we were able to do our ETF research uh, without nary a speed bump through that period. So, uh, you know, what we saw uh, through 2021 and going into January, even with all the volatility that kicked off the year, 2022, I keep needing to remind myself that it's 2022, uh, kind of (laughs) astonishing, um, uh, is that uh, people are still using ETFs to express quick and immediate access, right? When there's a big sell-off, we see inflows into cheap beta, into passive, right? People sell their direct holdings in their stocks, and then when it comes time to get exposure quickly, they don't know where to allocate immediately. They'll do it with the cheap default product. And so we see enormous equity flows at a time when equities are selling off. It's something we still observe, right? Um, We often get uh, the question amongst ETF doubters, right, against the muckrakers that um, ETFs are going to destabilize the market when push comes to shove and there's a giant sell-off. 
Uh, there'll be blood on the streets because these ETF holders are going to dump their products and it's they're not they've been accustomed to this enormous liquidity it's going to trigger some kind of snowball effect i'm not exactly sure how the argument works because not only do i not buy it but the evidence doesn't bear it out there have been massive market disruptions and huge sell-offs over and over again in even illiquid markets like high yield bonds senior loans and so on and what we saw was yeah the, the underlying market can break down as it did in 2020 the underlying bond market in the u.s especially and the entire canadian corporate bond market as well completely froze up but the ETFs, they developed on-screen discounts, but they still traded through the day um, without interruption and provided access and liquidity when nothing else would. And in fact, you know, there's reason to believe that they created some kind of liquidity release valve uh, into the market and may have, in fact, increased the stability of the wider bond market and come to the rescue. Certainly in the U.S., ETFs came to the rescue of the wider mutual fund complex because the Fed started buying them, right? Um, uh, in order to kind of staunch redemptions that were go going to start happening in, in mutual funds. And that may indeed have been a kind of liquidity doom loop scenario that we don't really much want to think about, right? Um, so, uh, you know, ETFs are still a small section of the market. So, Pierre, to your question, they have about 10 to 12% market share relative to mutual funds. In Canada, about 20% in the U.S. That means that the equilibrium point between ETFs and other forms of asset management is still very much a minority. Like ETFs are still very much a minority. And when there's large shakeups, you're going to see capital flow to the ETF complex because, you know, in physics, we talk about a diffusion equation. When you have a very large body connect uh, to a smaller vessel through kind of a narrow inlet and there's turbulence and, and, uh, and, and exchanges of pressure, you know, particles are just going to flow from the uh, higher concentration to the lower concentration um, uh, zones. And, uh, uh, the, the, the ability and access to do so, the speed bumps that people encounter are, in fact, um, their tax situations, right? So, uh, you know, that's the, the real limiting factor to why someone might not choose to immediately allocate to a cheaper, better vehicle for exposure to, let's say, U.S. equities. So, you know, we did see significant flows into the landscape of, of U.S. equities um, uh, in, in the last couple of weeks even as the markets were, were experiencing untold volatility. We saw large outflows from Canada, which I thought was a little surprising, given that Canada is, uh, you know, traditionally a great inflation play, right? Energy economy, uh, the banks as well, um, which are very much correlated with the major energy businesses that are their primary clients. Uh, not only that, but being banks, they too could benefit from a steepening of the yield curve if we enter into kind of a rate hiking cycle. So I would say that, uh, uh, you know, our macroeconomists see Canada as a, a, as, a, as a kind of natural resting spot for people who are fearful about the kind of inflationary environment we're heading into. But, uh, you know, we haven't really seen a lot of flows into Canadian equity ETFs uh, in the near term. I think that should that happen, it will happen over a longer time scale. And we would need to collect a few quarters of data before we really see people using Canadian equity ETFs as the as a kind of trade vehicle for for this kind of um, inflationary environment, which we may or may not be heading into. So when you say you saw um, redemption, so, mm -hmm. so you're, you're saying in Canada mm -hmm. on Canadian based ETFs broadly listed in Canada, you saw redemptions in that space over this period of time. And that That's money, right. I'm assuming, was headed towards the. U.S. sort of market that's cap right. weighted or tech weighted areas. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's exactly what we saw. And, and that, the data hasn't fully come in for the entire month of January. I mean, we're on the last calendar date of January. So uh, in the next day or two, if you're if you're listening to this 
podcast, uh, you know, uh, I'll, it'll, it'll, it'll probably hmm. be out uh, a report for January 2022. There's that year again. Um, uh, I have to remember on my checks and so on. You know, it's it's crazy. Uh, <laughs> You're still writing checks. <laughs> that's right. What are they? You know, I don't know. Right. Uh, you know, just as collector's items, people want to keep my signature. Uh, I'm just kidding. The, uh, um, the, uh, uh, w yes, we saw ma major redemptions from Canada, from, Can from passive Canadian equity wow. ETFs. The problem is that some of those redemptions can be quite choppy because um, there are certain ETFs in the Canadian market that have very, very choppy inflow and outflows on short timescales because uh, there are large, um, you know, international overseas hedge funds, managers and so on who use it very much as a kind of tactical petrol play for better or for worse. You know, uh, and, and in fact, many of the Canadian, some of the Canadian ETFs may, may be getting employed by international investors that way. And if, you know, the relative performance of Canada versus the U.S. through January was was higher. And if there's some kind of rotations or profit taking or relative profit taking going on. Rebalancing. Or, exactly. Then that that might have prompted one or two large trades through the month of January. So I think that um, we'll have to be a couple of months into the year before we really see whether that uh, that kind of phenomenon is going on. I know that our institutional equities trading desk is very interested to know is Canada for sale via the mechanism of ETFs? It's something we saw in 2014-15, right? Like when oil was for sale, that was one of the, you know, ET Canadian equity ETFs were being dumped left and right. But uh, I don't know if that's the right move for this coming environment. And, uh, uh, you know, the data remains to be collected. So it sounds like... Uh, well, that, that's where my mind went was, uh, just, just I want to follow up on yeah, this, yeah. Sure. That My mind went that it was potentially uh, more international flows Mm -hmm. uh, that actually would have been coming in to Canada to capitalize on sort of the resource-based economy. And um, so, but then you've got the counterflows of rebalancing and then exactly. you've got the counterflows of, of you know, investors who have been waiting to get a spot in, yeah. in the tech correction because yep. they were, they felt underexposed. So you've got all kinds of uh, dimensions to the investor decision that you're That's trying right. to suss out of this big pool of capital that has moved around. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we talk about ETFs being transparent and being visible and we can see their activity on the exchanges very clearly. But the actual holders of them are anonymized, right? We don't really right. know who is driving what capital where. If you look at the, for instance, just the month of January, I think there was one particular um, international ex-Japan ETF uh, that got something like three billion of inflows very suddenly in one day, you know? Who on earth, what? It, it kind of makes sense to think that it was like the Bank of Japan doing that, right? Because they have been a massive buyer of Japanese equities and in fact, probably very, very overexposed. So if they needed to get like some kind of ex-Japan exposure, it could have been that institution. We don't know. We don't know. And we can't know because the trading is anonymized. And in fact, that's why so many institutions love ETFs, right? They can cover their tracks, so to speak, right? Better via the mechanism of ETFs, especially if they have large stock positions, they can blend it in with ETFs, they can go long short certain positions, they can kind of strip out individual company exposures. And, and, uh, and that is one of the many kind of uh, arrows in the quiver of an institutional manager to, that they can use, uh, particularly if they want to transact in large amounts in the marketplace suddenly and on a dime without necessarily uh, telegraphing to the whole street uh, that they're making a particular company call, right? How do you deal with $3 billion of inflows? Jesus. It's doable, you know, and, and it's, it's not the first time we've seen such unbelievable like sudden flows, but it just goes to show that when a basket is incredibly well diversified over thousands and thousands of stocks, the, all the stocks can be individually illiquid, 
But when an ETF is that diversified, $3 billion, when you spread it, when you thin slice it across many, many, many different holdings, you won't make more than a 10% volume impact in any one of the individual constituents, even in a single day, right? It's a way that a, an ETF that holds, like there, there, we, we found on certain timescales, it depends when you analyze the volumes, but for instance, Canada has the TSX 60 index, but also has the TSX composite index. The TSX 60 holds the 60 large cap. The TSX composite goes into like mid and small <clears throat> caps, not really super small, but like 240 some holdings, you know, depending on the time period, their, their liquidity, you know, of the underlying basket, the implied liquidity of the composite can sometimes be higher than TSX 60 even though it holds much smaller, less liquid companies. That's because the kind of the long, it's a fat tail of liquidity distribution that occurs as you stretch down the line of smaller companies. And then when you have like more room for your capital to flow into as you're creating a large trade instantaneously, um, it's all algorithmic, right? Our market makers just, you know, they push a button and it, and it happens automatically uh, in the blink of an eye. And it is uh, somewhat miraculous. And it's something that kind of astonishes me every day. We see it in fixed income. You know, we get clients all the time who say, can you prove to me that a fixed income ETF in, in, uh, can, can accommodate such volume? It's much easier to kind of demonstrate it to them by, you know, uh, you know, really parting the curtain on the portfolio and saying this bond can hold this much volume and so on. Uh, it's something that's far more doable in the world of equities, and we have a kind of model to uh, simulate on the back end what a market maker would do if they're kind of creating a basket, how they can optimize, how they can strip out the bottleneck securities, how they can put in proxies and so on. Fixed income is much harder because the bond trading market isn't as transparent. But each ETF market banking desk is a bond trading desk in miniature, and they know how liquid uh, the securities are. And when they're quoting, they're competing with one another. So you're relying on that competitive mechanism. And we can see in history many times when what should be an illiquid product actually, because it holds hundreds of, of securities, bonds in particular that haven't traded for days, if not weeks, suddenly accommodate billions of dollars of flow in an instant without, you know, right there on the bid or on the ask. Um, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's something that has uh, been demonstrated historically many times. And we've, we, we kind of save those examples as snapshots on our Bloomberg just to give some clients comfort that the deep pool of liquidity does indeed underlie this particular fixed income ETF. Not all, but some. So, so that's a really good point to, to um, offer some advice to those who are portfolio managers out there who are trading ETFs. How, how should they, you know, they're doing a $100 million order across their book, and mm -hmm. how should they think about that? What tactics should they take? Should they call their ETF desk, right. how, how, what, are, what are some tips and tricks so that they don't find themselves with a, yeah. a fill that's four or 5% off the NAS? So that's a great question, Mike. And in fact, when we, we published on this, when the Canadian Securities Authority had uh, amended some of its rules around um, fact sheet disclosures around effective spreads, because we wanted to communicate to advisors how to interpret that, how to interpret this data point, right? ETFs have a bit of spread, but like all stock-like securities of the trade and exchange, they also have an effective spread, which dives into the order book to kind of see how big the order would be at certain notional trade sizes, right? We find that uh, we, we calculate this figure for ETFs all the time. We used to publish on it very, very frequently, um, but it's difficult to do so, but we did do that. Um, but now that uh, the, every fact sheet has an effective spread on it, we, we published a piece in 2016, which again, seems like ages ago, on how to interpret that. And in that piece, we had a list of trading hygiene tips. So that answers your question. And I know that I'm not going to remember all of them right now. Uh, I wish I had in front of me. But one of them, of, of course, is to use limit orders and not market orders. 
um, you know, um, and uh, trade. If you can avoid it away from right after the open and right before the close, because, you know, the, the, the risk in hedging uh, increases a little bit for market makers around that time. For some securities, particularly, um, you know, those uh, that uh, that have illiquid baskets. Uh, the other one is you, you can check implied liquidity if you know how, uh, you know, the TSX has tools, uh, Bloomberg has tools, you know, advisors uh, may be able to access those kinds of metrics from third-party data vendors. Um, you can come to us if you have access to our ETF research desk, and we will be able to communicate to you the kind of liquidity that actually exists in the ETF. And yes, uh, if you do have access to an ETF market maker and you can, uh, you know, your retail trading desk can get a line in with them, you can work with your ETF market makers to really understand in real time precisely the kind of liquidity that is available in, in an ETF. You know, um, uh, it's not necessarily the case, and this is a drum that we've been beating for 12 years. Uh, as long as I've been doing this, it's not necessarily the case that an ETF with no volume has no liquidity. Uh, it, it, in fact, uh, an ETF with no volume can be just as liquid as the most liquid ETF out there because of that uh, of, of the creation redemption mechanism. Um, and it's not Preach. necessarily the case that an ETF that is highly liquid is as a liquid as, let's say, a, uh, that trades a lot with very high volume is as liquid as a stock that trades with that volume. And what, what do I mean by that? Sometimes <clears throat> what you'll get and this is something we, we described in our report on the uh, 2020 era bond ETF dis apparent dislocations in premium discount to NAV. Sometimes what happens is you'll have a very, very tight bid-ask spread band around, let's say, the ask of, of the basket spread if the ETF is itself enjoying a lot of demand, right? But then as soon as there's a lot of supply, if, there's, if the natural unit holders of the ETF all start dumping their shares simultaneously... And the market maker, what you'll see is that ETF's actual trading price on the exchange cross the basket spread. And there'll be a new small bid-ask spread around, you know, the bid price of the basket if there's herding behavior in an ETF. So um, if there's herding in an ETF that is illiquid, what it will look like is premiums and discounts, big premiums and discounts. Because the NAV is, in a sense, fictitious, right? Uh, uh, no nothing has a single price. Everything has two prices, your house, your car, this pen, your collector's items, your bitcoins, I, everything has two prices, it has a bid and an offer. And it stems from the liquidity and the supply demand mechanics around the underlying asset. And those prices are passed on to um, uh, individuals on an exchange. It's why ETFs are so powerful and efficient. If you're, if you're a long-term unit holder, the kind of activity of buyers and sellers doesn't affect you as much. All those costs are externalized, right? So there are examples of, let's say, senior loan ETFs where the underlying basket is 1%. The basket spread is, you know, the bet spread ratio is 100 basis points. The ETF apparently has a very narrow spread because it's a very high volume. But if uh, sentiment around the buying and selling of that ETF changes, you will find yourself in price action on the exchange crossing a spread. It's a bit of a sophisticated topic. I uh, hope I didn't get too technical and head spinning on it. But we did write a report on it, and I have some cartoons and some data to illustrate it. Uh, it is part of our uh, education process when we get into the ETF 301, the grad school material, when we're advising clients, right? And as you can tell from the top of the hour to bring it all back, I love school. I would go back to grad school if I could. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll teach a course in this one day. Is is there a place where advisors and allocators could um, find that piece of research that it's available publicly? Or is that something that is available only directly from your team? Yeah, so it's available through our team. We have something of a unique franchise at National Bank. I'm an analyst, just like any other analyst uh, in our research department. I, I have a coverage universe, right? Uh, uh, I'm not making calls. I'm not setting price targets. 
uh, and my coverage universe isn't an industrial sector of, let's say, like a dozen companies. My coverage universe is the 3,000 ETFs between Canada and the U.S. We publish research reports that are available to clients of National Bank. If you and, and that could be any client because they're the compliance for wide release, just like any other uh, analyst report of National Bank. So if you are even, let's say, a discount um, client of, of National, you'll find a little kind of research portal where you can re receive our reports. Um, on a on a one-to-one -one kind of personal correspondence basis, anybody who gets in touch with me, I'm happy to share PDFs of our research reports, especially deep cuts from the back catalog, because those are, uh, you know, we work very hard on them and they, uh, they, may, they may still have a, a bit of a shelf life, even though they're not uh, as current as they once were. But yeah, anybody is welcome to get in touch with me um, and, uh, and, and I'll uh, share my, my research directly. Awesome. Well, I'm curious about another thing, Daniel. Sure. Um, carbon nanotubes. <laughs> yeah, so uh, they're little tubules of graphene. You know, they're uh, they're uh, they have amazing properties. You know, carbon is a miracle material. We're we're carbon-based life forms, right? Uh, the the carbon atom, uh, its bond can form unbelievably complex structures. And one of the, in fact, simpler structures it can form is a perfect hexagonal sheet, like a honeycomb lattice. And when you roll it up into a little tube, you get these uh, incredible properties uh, that could be uh, it could be. Um, you know, they could be semiconducting, they could have optical properties, they have high tensile strength, uh, they're very absorptive of light, you know, all sorts of um, incredible um, technological applications. I don't think you'll see massive commercial application even at this time, but what was amazing is <laughs> right as I was finishing up my thesis, uh, the guy who discovered superconductivity in graphene, which is an unrolled sheet of carbon, uh, won the Nobel Prize. So it was like a it was a separate, if I had been studying that from the beginning, maybe I would have, uh, you know, had different academic prospects. But, uh, uh, yeah, carbon nanotubes, they're very cool. You know, you could make, a, you could make the cable for it. a space elevator out of them. Yeah, well, I was, I, oh, yeah. <laughs> I was curious because, you know, what would motivate you to, to do your doctoral thesis on, on that? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there had to be a reason. I, I, I wanted to ask you at the beginning, but we got, we got to talking sure. about ETFs. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. ETFs that, are that, cool too. ETF topic. <laughs> I, I like to think of <clears throat> ETFs as the nanotubes of the financial universe. I'm not sure where uh, where Adam went I to. Think, uh, um, according to the. Uh, oh wait. So Adam, if I don't know if he can oh. see us, but Adam, if you're still there, don't hang up. Okay. The the one question I had to I, I think we've been we've been at this yeah. for about an hour. The conversation has been fantastic, and I think. Um, we'll get back at it too. At some point, we'll have you back on if you, if you uh, yeah. uh, grace us with some more time, because I think it, it's been an amazing conversation and uh, wide ranging. Uh, you did say you're a science fiction yeah. fan. Yeah. And I wondered what is your, what is your favorite science fiction book or series? Oh boy. Well, I have a lot that are, are my favorite. Um, you know, probably one that's very formative. And in fact, surprising to me to be in the news again, is a snow crash by Neil Stevenson, right? And uh, mm -hmm. that's the book that had the term a metaverse for instead of cyberspace. It's a bit of, it was at the time, even itself a, a satire of the emerging cyberpunk uh, genre. Uh, it all, he also coined the term, I believe, avatar in there for your kind of digital representation. And, uh, and he had to tweet recently that he has no affiliation whatsoever with uh, Facebook's rebrand to meta platforms and uh, but there are several metaverse ETFs now, too. And when I read that book in high school, if you had told me that, uh, you know, I'd be an ETF analyst in 20-some years and there will be an ETF, not one but several, yeah. 
uh, with the word metaverse in the name, I would have been very, very surprised. Um, so, th so that's exciting. But uh, the, the, a, a recent book I read, a more of a novella, really, uh, that I really enjoyed is, uh, is called This is How You Lose the Time War by Max Gladstone and Amal Amotar, who's actually, I believe, in Ottawa right now, my hometown. Uh, a really, really fun kind of epistolary time travel um, fiction romance spy story. Um, they, they wrote it together as letters between them, collaborators. I found that very cool and interesting. Uh, I read the science fiction collection of uh, both of them by Ted Chang recently as well. I, uh, the whole world was telling me to read that for a very long time, and I finally got to it. And again, it's now ranks amongst my favorites. So I can talk about this for a long time. If you wanted to make this a science <laughs> oh, fiction podcast, amazing. we can start now. I think, I think we got to do another podcast on that with Adam because he's yeah. a uh, big fan of that space. I am, I'm yeah. a tourist, and I do, <laughs> I do enjoy it, but I don't sure. have quite the, the depth of knowledge. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, amazing to uh, to have yeah. you on. And, and um where can people find you and where can uh, people reach out to you or where, where would well, they? Well, I, I do. I, I work for a bank. On... I do have a Twitter account. I'm a hardcore lurker. Uh, Mike, I follow your and Adam's work. All the uh, Resolve guys are, you know, uh, FinTwit participants par, par excellence. It's uh, uh, and, and I have enormous FOMO uh, uh, <laughs> seeing the fun you guys have out there. I, I was tweeting until 2014 when I was promoted to full analyst and, um, you know, the social media policy. <laughs> at our bank uh, uh, means that most of the words that come out of my mouth can possibly be construed mm -hmm. as, uh, as, uh, as research. So I, 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 you know, that made me a little paranoid. Uh, maybe one day I'll, I'll re-enter that world when I get some kind of uh, media policy uh, and public relations clarity around whether I can participate in the, in the social media. I, I, uh, so I, I don't have um, kind of a public facing, shall we say, uh, a Twitter profile where we share ETF research. But uh, you can email me at etfresearch at nbc.ca is the collective ETF research uh, email address for the entire team. And uh, we receive dozens of queries to that address a day. It goes into a container and uh, uh, we, we take pride in having very fast turnaround and getting back to people very quickly uh, if they have ETF questions. So if you're a client of National Bank uh, in, in any capacity, you know, you have access to our uh, full-fledged ETF research desk. Awesome. Love it. Adam, you, you missed the conversation about favorite science fiction books, bro. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Of course I did. Yeah. Inevitably. Just for edification, yeah. do tell them what they were. I, I've already Yeah. Forgotten. So, uh, you know, it, it, it goes all the way from uh, uh, Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson to the collections of Ted Chang and more recently, This Is How You Lose the Time War by uh, Max Gladstone and Amala Motar, which is really fun time travel, epistolary, romance novel, spy thriller. 200 page novella you'll finish it in an afternoon it was uh it was wonderful more poetry than who's, who's that by again it's by uh max gladstone and i believe the last name is amal el motar I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing it but it was written as an epistolary correspondence between two science fiction writers um not knowing what the other would read would would uh would write to the other so it was uh itself something of a social experiment and, and uh, it was absolutely delightful I hardly read That's as many books as I could anymore. I find that this modern internet age has kind of collapsed my attention span. You know, I used to be able to read novels, um, you know, very frequently, but now I find that I need to bombard all of my senses with a novel if I am to consume it. So I need to have the audiobook playing and I need to have yeah. the physical book and I need to have the ebook, all three immediately <laughs> at hand so that I can have a hope of finishing it, right? 
the ebook uh, exactly and the paper the version. That's right. And the audio. Yeah, that's, that's so right. Publishers it. love me because I buy their books three <laughs> times over. Three times. But yeah. the, the, the thing that's the most stimulating is the audiobook, I find. Like mm-hmm. when you listen to audiobooks. Yeah, they're amazing. You know, they're more. Oh, there's another one of my yeah. favorites, Nyoman by Nick Harkaway. So that's a fantastic book that I bought three times. Uh, Nick Harkaway is a British writer. I, I don't know how uh, often it's known or shared, but he's actually the, the son of John le Carré. Wow. You know, just coincidence. Fantastic writer in his own right. Um, and he writes science fiction. Uh, his first book, uh, The Gone Away World, a fantastic, fun, satirical, hilarious, kung fu, dystopian romp. Okay. And then his book, Nyoman, was like an intricate four-part multi-dimensional puzzle that had to be unlocked in your brain as you read it. And it was by far the most stimulating thing I read in, in, in recent memory. Um, absolutely fantastic. Nyoman, uh, spelled with a G, G-N-O-M-O-N, which is the uh, thing that sticks up from a sundial that casts a shadow, lets you tell it all the time, by Nick Harkaway. And the audio book, the reading, the actor is is famous um, uh, 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 British voice actor who who does the audiobook reading of it. And I read the physical book and the ebook at the same time. I was switching in order to finish it, right? Um, he does an amazing job. That book is told in multiple voices, and it's, it's just... Uh, um, I, I still think about it. In fact, when I when I'm uh, you know lie awake at night, I find myself automatically kind of going to that book, and I, I do need to reread it again. That that book itself will will would spawn an entire podcast series for me if I had a chance to uh, to to kind of workshop it. Wow, that sounds Daniel, amazing. Yeah. Daniel, <clears throat> thank you so much. That that uh, thank you so much for your time and for sharing a little sliver of your encyclopedic knowledge. It's been uh, it's been a wonderful conversation. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much, guys. It's been really fun, and uh, um, look forward to a lot of really awesome more episodes from you. I've I've uh, I've, I've discovered you on, on on Spotify, so I know that that's <laughs> been uh, coming in for some controversy in terms of what what kind of content it hosts. Yeah, but <laughs> uh, but I but I, it's definitely one of my one of my favorite streams now, and uh, we I, I got to find you on some other platforms if i if i decide to join the boycotts i don't awesome. know not saying i will but uh, <laughs> we're on all of them but so uh, you'll be fine all right fantastic okay and, and and we're not we're not taking a stand against rogan i think adam's having a little bit of audio uh challenges so he's he's remaining silent but not by uh, sure. choice but uh by design i muted him so <laughs> okay. you know because i wanted to monopolize the conversation as you all yeah. might know me i like, love my voice like. yeah yeah so thanks so much thanks all of you it's uh been a lot of fun for me too.